This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from the Anson Rooms in Bristol. Please welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. I, I, I would say that is the best whooping yet. Isn't that good? What do you think? Yeah. Bristol wins the whooping contest. You've had a tough day, and exactly. wasn't it all worth it? It was, definitely. Ed, uh, Ed missed his train. Oh, well, I thought you weren't... I thought you weren't going to draw attention to that. <laughs> I became paranoid that maybe you deliberately missed the train so that we didn't have to sit together. Were you, well, were you having... now that you mention it. <laughs> Ed not only missed his train, but some, something really, really terrible has happened. Oh, the crepes, the crepe stall outside the, the train station has gone. Can, can anyone explain? Well, actually, the good news is they've now opened a make-your-own-sandwich stall where it used to be. They haven't, so. they haven't. <laughs> When I mention the crepe stall outside Bristol Temple Meads, yeah. But where, can some? I mean, it's all very well whooping, but can someone, <laughs> can, can someone explain to me where it's gone? My taxi driver said to me, uh, who I got, got from the station, he said they'd been priced out of the market, by, presumably by Network Rail. Right. Um, <laughs> any, any intelligence? I'm pretty sure there was a train station there already. Maybe you and I should set up a crepe stall outside the train station. <laughs> Look, we've, we've been through this with no, the okay, fine, 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 so, fine. Uh, but uh, Jeff and I are reunited because I've been away in America for 10 days and with my kids. And how uh, was it? It was very good. It, I wasn't completely apart from Jeff because Jeff's mother-in-law was a sort of babysat my kids, or not babysat, but looked after my kids. And how did that go? Did they like it? It went incredibly well. She's, she's, she's a credit to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so shall we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yes. So we're going to be talking about gentrification. And about how do you make areas uh, more prosperous, uh, 
better, place, nice places to live without driving out people who've lived there for all their lives, people who want to live there, how do you make them affordable? And we've got a fantastic, stellar uh, group of people who shall be revealed when we get into our discussion. Yeah, uh, and then after that we'll be joined, and I'm really excited about this because I think it's so brilliant. We're joined by singer-songwriter Gavin Osborne, who's also a very funny man. He's going to be pitching some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, and he's going to be singing a song as well, which may or may not have an element of the duet with... A certain former leader of the Labour Party. I, did, I had no prior warning. I think I'm getting back on the train, actually, uh, as a result of that. Right, what's your reason to be cheerful? So I've got this uh, uh, a pilot show uh, coming out on the BBC in, um, in a couple of weeks. So I did, I did a run-through of it a while ago, and the first thing the BBC brilliant. said, they said, we love this, but we don't want you to host it. Um, so it's going to be hosted by Sarah Pascoe and Ashlyn B, who are both brilliant comedians, Ooh. and it's happening on Monday. And it's, it's called What's Normal, and it's about human behavior. So we are looking at, at bits of human behavior and deciding whether it's normal or not. So I thought we could try out one tonight. So, for example, um, sometimes when I... Don't make it rude. Uh, well, I've, I've, it's I've a family just, show. I'm self-editing. Okay, good. Uh, sometimes when I'm leaving a voicemail message for somebody, I feel that I've got myself into such a mess and it's such an incoherent ramble that I will press the hash key and do a retake and then maybe do that two or three times just because I want to get it perfect before I leave the voicemail. Uh, how many people think that is normal? Say normal. Abnormal. Say abnormal. There we go. Yeah. I, mean, I think voicemail messages are passe, basically. What, you're so busy you can't listen to a voicemail? No, I think most you're people don't like, don't like voicemail messages, basically. They but want why? a text. They want a text. Don't you think? Is that abnormal? Do you not think it's... Is that normal? Yeah. Abnormal? Mm. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You are in sync with the great British public in 2018, if not in 2015. I think I basically... But basically, voice thank you. Yeah. I almost missed that one, actually. Uh, almost. So my reason to be cheerful, moving on, is that I took my kids to their first baseball game, uh, the Boston Red Sox. People will know I'm a big supporter of the Boston Red Sox. Thank you. I've watched one Boston Red Sox supporter in the audience. And it was basically incredibly boring until right at the end when it became incredibly exciting. And basically for eight innings, they were just miserable. How and, long is that for those of us who don't uh, know? Really? Sort of two and a quarter hours. And basically nothing, nothing happened. It was nil-nil. It's like a really boring nil-nil draw. And then, thankfully, the other team scored. Then Boston came back. Then they won in what they call extra innings. Like that's extra time. And so it was all good. So they've now got the baseball bug. That's wonderful. Yeah, so I feel they couldn't have done it without you. And no. did you wear big foam hands? They've got some foam hands. Did they have to bring them on as hand luggage on the flight on the way we, out? We, we, they're quite squashy, so we sort of squashed them in. <laughs> um, and my wife, Justine, was uh, sort of having a nice break from us in London. And suddenly, as we were getting, going through duty-free, I said, the one thing we've forgotten is a present for mum. And they said, it's okay, we can give her the foam fingers. And I, <laughs> I tr tried to explain that the foam fingers were not really a sort appropriate. Of, well, yeah. they weren't sort of, you know, she wasn't going to be overjoyed. And yeah, that, yeah. you know, that was really nice of you to think of me and, <laughs> and so on. But they weren't, they weren't really so that is my reason to be cheerful. Wonderful. So, um, we're going to be talking about gentrification. We've got four brilliant guests. First of all, I'd like you to welcome Chris Chalkley, who is from the People's Republic of Stokescroft. And, and, and Paul Smith, who is a cabinet member for housing, who makes lots of the decisions which define whether gentrification happens or not. So give them both, please, a big warm welcome. 
thank you uh, both very much for joining us. Chris, let's start off by talking about Stokes Croft. Tell us a bit about your experience there, what you've been trying to do, and some of the challenges of gentrification that you're facing. Okay, well, Stokes Croft is a, an extraordinary place, characterized by massive dereliction since the Second World War, over 30% dereliction. Always been a place of alternative culture. In fact, the, the, the dereliction was one of the reasons why there was so much graffiti and street art in that area, because it, in the 80s, uh, this is where Massive Attack came from, and uh, there was a lot. They're of a band. Lot, yeah, lot, thank you very much. A lot, lot of people going to and from. Popular beat combo, yeah. <laughs> to and from America. So um, uh, the, the graffiti hip hop culture became very prevalent in that area. And um, when, when my business collapsed in the early 2000s, I moved my, the, the nub end of my business into Stokes Croft. Every day when I used to drive into Stokes Croft from the neighboring St. Werbergs, um, you would see the graffiti that people had put up on the walls overnight, very fast, illegally. Then the council would be coming along and painting gray squares. So you had this scenario where it was very gray, very dull, very boring. And very run down. And very run down. Um, December 2006, uh, we had a 48-foot-long wall, and I decided to paint a mural on it. And um, people kept coming up to me and saying, are you, are you allowed to do this? And I said, well, I should bloody well hope so. It's our wall. And, and we began to have these discussions with passers-by about how the, the distance to the council house was already too far for people to understand what was going on in that area with the culture of the area. So we, we joshed about, um, like in the film Passport to Pimlico, you know, the Ealing comedy, the, the idea of creating a republic. So very tongue-in-cheek, um, I decided in February 2007 to write a polemical website um, about how we could change things from the bottom up. And I put a whole list of possible sites. I photographed all the places where it could be painted. And with the idea of changing the area in the way that you fill in the... Uh, the spaces in the gap to the sm smile, you know? And um, so we would take photos of the dereliction before and then sweep the road and clean it and sort it out and paint it beautifully. And that kind of broke the, the habits of uh, you're not allowed to paint here. And we, we put a wall up with three-dimensional letters that said legal painting spot by order. And by order of nobody, of course. So the council clearly didn't want that to happen at that time. And the idea was that the people who live in that area could change that area through their own efforts. And because it has always been an extraordinary area. Where, where there is dereliction, low rents, you find all the artists, and you also find all the organizations that nobody else wants. So uh, the homeless hostels, the drug agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So really an incredibly fertile and interesting area and unencumbered by any multinationals because they didn't want to be there because there's no money there. So like a little lacuna, a little lake of alternative culture in the heart of the city. And where are things now in Stokes Croft? So fast forward from where you were in 2007 and before. We have definitely seen um, massive house price rises, but that's not all to do with Bristol's issues. It also has to do with central government policy. Um, we have seen uh, extraordinary artwork. We've had real political debate. It's like real 
philosophical and political debate taking place in real time there. So if we raise this issue of gentrification and you think about Stokes Croft, tell us about how you sort of think about it. Is it happening? Is it a problem? Well, it's, it's definitely happening. Uh, you know, there is definitely social change going on there. And social change happens always. You know, actually, City Road, which runs through St. Paul's, in the 1800s was the merchant's quarter, and the houses are very grand. And so areas do change. And, and I think the questions that we have to think about is how do we as a society, how do we actually organize our cities to go in the directions that we want them to go politically? Because as it stands, we're, uh, all of these things are guided by market forces, which is not the thing that should direct our societies. So let's bring in, let, let's bring in Paul. Um, Paul, we're, we're obviously talking about gentrification. You know Stokes Croft, you know Chris well. Just talk to us about how, as a cabinet member responsible for housing, you think about this concept of gentrification. Good thing, bad thing, you know, how, how do you sort of, just at a sort of philosophical level, how do you, how do you see it? And it's not just about Stokescroft. I mean, Stokescroft is, is one very small area of Bristol, and it's something that's happening across the whole of the, of the central Bristol. But gentrification is a, a nice word or an interesting word for middle-class people forcing out working-class people yeah. from particular communities by effectively pricing them out of those communities over a period of time. So it, it is a, an act of displacement, it, and it, it's got a class base to it. it it's about the, the wealthier people being able to use their financial power to force out poorer people from, from areas. Um, on the other hand, um, in some areas of the city which are, which are very poor, particularly uh, peripheral estates built in the, in the 30s and the 50s, we're quite keen to introduce middle class into those areas to create more balanced communities. And that might be said that we're trying to gentrify it, but I think you know, our objective as a local authority is to have mixed and balanced communities. It's much more difficult to do that where you know, most of the buildings are owned by the private sector, and which is why you know, one of the first things we did when our administration was elected two years ago um, was to stop selling council land to private developers uh, because they've got no interest in the poor. Their interest is making as much money as possible and they can't do that by selling to the poor in the same way that private landlords can't make as much money uh, by renting to the poor. That can only be done through, through social action, whether that's council housing, housing associations, community organisations, uh, whatever it is, it isn't the private sector. Is there an issue around affordable housing in as much as it's, it's got to be affordable housing for local people? I guess a lot of people with Bristol, because there's so much creativity here, they move from London, they think the housing is super affordable compared to what they're buying or renting in London and displacing local people in the process. Yeah, but, I mean, affordable is, is almost a more difficult word than gentrification. And the problem is it's been defined so widely particularly by the current government, that you get to a position where it doesn't mean anything. We are trying to get as much social housing, and it's, it's housing that's affordable for people on low incomes or on benefits. And that means social rent or low-rented housing that, that, that pe people can afford to live in. 
what developers want affordable housing to be is something completely different. And what are the loopholes that exist to allow them to do that? In terms of the centre of Bristol, there are at the moment three loopholes. One is to build big tower blocks of student housing. The second one is what's called permitted development, where an office block can be turned into a residential block and there is, again, no requirement for affordable housing and no space standards. Um, And then the third one is something called a viability assessment, where a developer can say, um, I can't make enough profit to borrow the money to do this development unless I don't have any affordable housing within my development. There are almost no developers that would, by choice, build affordable housing. So the only way we can really guarantee we build it is to do it ourselves and not to leave it to the market. The market is not interested in poor people. It's interested in in making profit. And it makes more profit from wealthy people than it does from poor people. So you cannot leave housing policy in the hands of the market. Just the starting point of our reason to be cheerful in, in coming to Bristol is that you do things differently in Bristol. In the planning system, we're, we're taking a much more robust position on these viability And in uh, fact, you're forcing developers to publish them. And we're forcing them to be published unredacted. So if you go to most councils and Bristol two years ago, the viability statement would basically have the name of the development at the top and everything else be coloured in black. So basically that would be the, a deal between the council and the developer which people wouldn't get to know about. Well, it, the, 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 the developer would get a consultant to prove, to do a calculation of the finances of the scheme to prove that it wasn't viable. So those now have to be published. Uh, but we, we do take a much stronger position on what makes the scheme viable. So what tends to happen is developers pay too much for land because landowners sell it for the most amount of money that they can. Well, if they've paid over what the value should be based upon our planning policies, our view is that's the developer's fault. It's not the fault of us. It's not the fault of the people who need affordable housing. So the, the planning committee has taken a, a much more robust uh, position. Also, when we came in, the previous mayor had put almost all of the council's housing land on the market. We immediately took that off the market because we would rather develop it ourselves or develop it with housing association partners or through community organisations than sell it and fuel land speculation, which is effectively what happens. Also, the previous administrations, uh, both the independent mayor and the Liberal Democrats, were auctioning off empty city centre council housing, which was fueling gentrification. We stopped those auctions and all of those properties are now occupied either by council tenants or um, by uh, homeless charities who we've rented the properties as a, to, as a peppercorn for them to help deal with the homelessness problem in Bristol. Let's carry on the discussion with Delroy Hibbert, who is director of the Bristol Cable and a long-term local resident, and Professor Antonia Layard from the University of Bristol. Please give them a warm welcome. Delroy, tell us a bit about your view, again as a long-term resident uh, who lives near Stokes Croft, about this whole gentrification issue, how you see Bristol unfolding in terms of these issues. Well, I think it's very interesting because I have lived in inner city Bristol. I grew up in St. Paul's uh, in the 70s and I've lived here most of my life. And so I've seen quite a lot of change happening within Bristol. 
Now, with regards to gentrification or the talk of gentrification in the area, I mean, the first thing that I will say is that I think gentrification is an overused term and quite often incorrect, in that there has been, well, I wouldn't say an influx is too inflammatory, but there has been a lot of movement from London into Bristol, which has had an effect. Uh, we are a growing population. It has had an effect on property prices. Now, with regards to Stokescroft itself, I think, in a way, it's been a victim of its own success. Uh, certainly when people like Chris and the People's Republic of Stokescroft were starting out, they didn't have any intention of seeing themselves priced out of the area. But I think what's happened is a certain community of artistic people has developed in the area Word has got out that this is a really vibrant, cool place cultural, to be. Cool place to be, and the estate agents and property developers have heard the call and started focusing on it. And you know, with anything, as it becomes more attractive, unfortunately, the prices have gone up. But the city is growing. I think between 2001 and 2011, the city grew by about 10 percent. Did we see a 10 percent increase in the supply of housing? So these are actually causing problems which are not necessarily the fault of the communities like Stokescroft, but it's very much felt around that surrounding area because of the popularity. Now, Antonia, you are based at the University of Bristol, but also very conveniently an expert on the issue of gentrification. Tell us a bit about how you see this whole issue and, and what can be done about it. So, Ed, you were telling me that you once met Ruth Glass when you were a kid. I was, yeah, I did, yeah. So gentrification is usually attributed to Ruth Glass, an urban sociologist at UCL in the 1960s, who I think may have coined it before you were born, but she coined it as the middle class invading working class quarters, a good Marxist definition, which we still use today. And one of the things she pointed out was that it was about a competition for space. So what you've got is lots of people wanting to be in the same area. And at that time, it was North London, it was Islington and around. And the point there about the gentry is that the gentry buy their own homes. And so people were coming to the end of their leases. Rachman was exerting some of his influence. This is in the 1960s. In the 1960s, before you were born, you might have been a twinkle in your parents' eye. But at that time, gentrification... I was actually born in the 60s, as Jeff regularly points (laughs) out. I got seven days in the 1960s. He's, he's borderline millennial, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the 60s child. <laughs> Maybe that's why. So competition for space and gentry because you buy a home. So what's happening, people come to the end of their leases, they were being kicked out, and people were moving in with their habitat and with their colour supplements and their quiche Lorraine, and they were doing up the North London houses. Don't know about your parents, but maybe Probably they were, yeah. And they were doing up their houses and... They were then owning them, and they were saying there were certain conservation standards, and Islington became very fashionable in parts. Yes. Um, and what we've got that's different today is that often it's renters being replaced by renters. And so one of the great failures we've got in this country is that leases are, they are short-term, generally 6 to 12 months in writing. They can go longer on the private sector. And there's no limit to how much rent you might pay. So you know, we once had some politicians who suggested that we might limit rent increases to... to it was me, yeah. Yep, CKI. <laughs> so that would have been good. And, and, that and they are doing it in Scotland, you were saying to me. Well, they're doing, they, they've gone better than you in Scotland. I'm sorry, oh, right, Scotland. okay. The Scotland rules, as I tell all my students, everything's better in Scotland. <laughs> so Apart from the weather, maybe. Uh, 
in Scotland, what's happened is in 2016, they brought in a piece of legislation and it started in December 2017, where if you have a lease, it has no end. The only way the landlord can get you out is for 18 reasons, which if you'd like a quick tutorial, I can run you through. But one would be a mandatory ground that the landlord wants to live there. One discretionary ground would be that someone in the landlord's family wants to live there, might be able to. And if you don't pay your rent for three months, that may be mandatory, may be discretionary, depending on... And is there a limit on the increases? So, yes. So that's security of tenure. So you can't be kicked out. The rent can still go up. So what they've devised is this idea called rent pressure zones, where local authorities can come together and they can say, if it's looking bad, there's quite a lot of evidence that's got to be submitted, but it would be CPI plus 1%. So at the moment, that's 2.5%. It's inflation rate plus 1%. Sorry, yes. Inflation rate plus 1%. That's still quite a lot. So over three years, that's still going to be 10%. But it's not, well, all right. But it's not 16% in one year, which happened here or something. In in Bristol in 2016, it was 18% in one year for one-bedroom flats. So yeah, 2.5 plus one, not far more than I get paid extra in a year, but it would be better than the 18% in the private market. And obviously you're sitting next to Paul, but don't let that sort of influence what you say. Um, how do you think Bristol's doing? What more could they be doing? What would you be, and I'm going to ask you all this, what would you, given that Paul's a sort of relatively captive audience, what would, you, what would you be pushing him to do more of? So I think Paul is doing a brilliant job. I am a huge fan, I will say. Um, and yeah, the answer is to keep it public. I'd like to see personally a bit more land going to community land trusts. Um, I think that's a great way to ensure that people maybe can put in their own... So talk to us about community... And I know you and Chris will want to talk about community land trust, but say something about what that means because it's quite can be quite hard to get your head around it. So a community land trust, there are lots of different ways in which you can create the trust, but the idea is that the people come together and collectively own a piece of land and then generally it's freehold sometimes, so you own it, sometimes you might have a lease. And in Bristol, Keith Cowling's done amazing work leading a group of people to have a rental community land trust, which is quite rare. Um, so, again, really forward-thinking way of doing that. So I'd like a bit more land, maybe. And so what does that mean for the, for the person renting their house or well, flat? Well, it means that it's not a housing association. You're not a council tenant, but you are renting from the community, the, the body that's been set up. And if that's designed to be in perpetuity, at a lowish rent, then that's a secure way of living. And that's how we combat gentrification. So the reason to be cheerful is we know how to fix gentrification. We need to give people stronger leases, and we need to have more community ownership of land. And then we're sorted. Chris, say something about community land trust, because obviously it's a subject close to your heart. We have set up a, a legal entity called Stokescroft Land Trust. And I think it's these legal entities, these institutional... What we're really looking at is institutional change. That's where the work has to be. The interesting thing is that the sums do add up. So with the, the PRSC building, we, we bought that. And we have paid 5% per annum interest to those investors, which is more than you'll get at the bank. So we all work out how to do it. We can invest in ourselves. Delroy, I want to come back to, to Paul in a sec, but anything that you would push him towards? Um, well, I think Paul's actually doing a really good job at this moment in time. What I would like to Let's see... Let's not overdo it, okay? You know, I mean... <laughs> well, he did bribe me, so... Yeah. You know. uh, no. Um, what I would like to see is more support from central government, certainly in terms of building social housing, because one of the things that, you know, we've certainly seen an increase of with this uh, property price 
increase in Bristol is a massive increase in homelessness. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about people that are sleeping on the streets. We've seen caravans and trailer parks uh, starting to develop in Bristol. We've seen and ten, and just worth ten saying, cities. I mean, average house price in Bristol, £280,000. Average income in Bristol, £28,000. So your average house price, ten, no ten times average the average, uh, average wage. Yeah. So I think we to offset that, we need to see a massive increase in social housing. And I'd like to see support from that. I think we need to investigate and look at land banking and how that's affecting the buy-to-let market, how that's affecting uh, the situation. And we need to actually be proactive about taking charge of this. I mean, we've had it for too long. It's all very well saying, yes, Bristol's great and, you know, it's really vibrant. And, and, but it's not vibrant if you're sleeping in a sleeping bag in the middle of town. It's not uh, attractive at all if you're in a caravan on the edge of the city. So we need to start talking about things and start actually doing things to address the situation. Paul, why don't you come in, just react to some of this, and also this community land trust. Has that got big potential as an idea, do you think? We're working with a number of community-led organisations. The community land trust is one. And actually, their issue is capacity, not land. We're, we're making land available to them. But we've got Community Development Trust. Community Just for those who don't know, what's a Community Development Trust? And how's it community Development Trust. Community Land Trust. Community Land Trusts tend to be owned by the residents of the trust. So if eight people build eight houses and live together, the Land Trust is those eight people. Community Development Trust is owned by the whole of the community who live in that area. In some respects, I I think it's a better model than the land trust, but the land trust can operate where there aren't community development trusts. If you add up all of the schemes that are being worked on by community-led organisations in Bristol, it's well over a 1,000 new homes. So it's, it's not a sort of marginal thing on the side. It's absolutely incredibly substantial. And our ability to do that, again, is because the council owns land. Land is absolutely at the heart of all of this, and land ownership is at the heart of this. One of the biggest threats to us um, as a council in doing things is, of course, the right to buy. So if you go back to 1980, a third of the housing in Bristol was council housing. It's now 13%. Right? That's, that's how much it's changed. And if you go on to council estates now, you'll find that there are private landlords who have bought up those ex-council houses, are renting them up out but between two and three times the council rent with less security, fewer repair services uh, for people. And it, it's soul-destroying, actually, to see the way in which we've seen the privatisation of land by successive governments um, allowing that transfer of wealth from common ownership, the council is common ownership, it is ownership by the people, to private ownership operating in the interest only of profit. Should we take questions? Yeah. Hello? Hi. Hi, um, my name's Sophie. Hi, Sophie. I live in Bristol. Um, I was wondering, we've been talking a lot about housing and purchasing housing and how that contributes to gentrification. I wondered if anyone could comment on urban spaces particularly the conflict of private urban spaces. Antonia. Okay, so... This is, something, this, is like, this is right in the middle of your expertise, isn't it? You, you could give us a PhD <laughs> thesis on this. 
Correct. I could, I could rant for some time. No, no, no. Feel free to rant away. Right. So Cabot Circus is the freehold is owned by the council. If you go on the website, know your place, it will say it's Bristol City Council. It belongs to all of us, who it actually belongs to for the next probably about 240 years now. It was a 250-year lease received by a company set up between Land Securities and Hammerson under the Lib Dems. I'm going to let Paul get away with this one. It was under the Lib Dems. So they sold our city centre, 36 acres of Cabot Circus, for 250 years to these companies. We don't know how much for, we don't know what the terms of the lease are, because it's redacted to bits. Okay, let, should we collect some more, because I'm conscious of time, let's co- collect some more questions. Hi, I'm Holly. Quick shout out to Acorn Tenancy Union, who do a lot, do a lot to stop vindictive um, uh, no-fault evictions in the city. And I was just wondering uh, what the panel thought about specifically repealing Section 21 of the Housing Act, which is no-fault evictions, in, not just in terms of stabilising the renting market, but also people's mental well-being and you know being able to keep their kids in the same school okay let's collect these so, so section 21 a repeal of no fault evictions we've got a very well informed audience i would say yep. yeah so mine's a bit more of a broad question maybe i just heard a lot about developers in some of our conversations kind of this evening and how it's difficult to get affordable housing built etc has the council kind of looked at whether they could get involved in that space so actually become a developer and build those things and if so if yes, great. Yes, we're doing that. And yeah. what, are the, what are the blockers around that and why isn't that done more? It seems like a quite, okay. quite good, good solution. Collect that and we'll come back. Section 21 plus, can you be a developer? And then gentlemen in the second row. So Delroy mentioned this a little bit in passing about the, the sort of buy-to-let market. Uh, to what extent do you think the buy-to-let market has been a cause of gentrification and the housing crisis more broadly? Uh, and what can local authorities and government do to solve that problem basically should we do those and then do one more round because because that's quite a lot to be getting on with right so firstly in the private sector we should have rent controls and we should have security of tenure there, i don't think there's any doubt about that apparently there's still people with fair rents there's still there some are. people who've got them there are we and interviewed somebody on the podcast didn't we about yes, was, we did. You've been and, and they're about half what the private sector bills. rents are the reason homelessness has grown dramatically in the last five years is because of changes to the housing benefit rules so it's the local housing allowance, which has led to private landlords evicting in large numbers people on benefits and, and low incomes. We house a thousand families a year because of homeless in this city. And last year we, we had to provide services of some kind or another to 773 rough sleepers. Almost all of that is caused by changes to the benefit rules. Those benefit rules have particularly affected the private rented sector. Also, because the government has driven councils progressively over time out of, out of delivering new housing, and it wasn't something that the last Labour government uh, addressed, sadly, um, the, then there is, the only alternative that's been there is the private rent sector. The only time in this country that we've delivered enough affordable housing for people in need, and also people who wouldn't normally be considered in need because it was, it was the whole of the working class, not just the vulnerable parts of the working class who were housed by councils, was when councils built at volume. And it's the only way we're going we're gonna to deal with this problem that we've got now is, is actually having public sector building at volume. Why haven't we done it before? Because there have been so many barriers put in our way by central government. And have you covered count the council being a developer itself? 
Yeah, well, as I said, we are, we are being a developer, both, as I said, setting up a company within the general fund to be a developer and developing traditional council housing as well. And, by, and what can be done about buy-to-let? Well, we have to, if we move into that market, we can start, again, taking control. We need to drive up council housing back to being 20-25% of the housing stock, not 13%. Should we go to the audience again just to get more people in? <laughs> My name's Amelia. Hello. Hello. As a, a University of Bristol student, I'm aware that we can be an acceleration force behind gentrification. So I was just wondering, as a student and as a consumer, what we can do to kind of slow down or put our efforts and money elsewhere that doesn't kind of accelerate gentrification? Good question. Really good question. All the questions are good. Hi, my name's Leila. Hello. I just wondered what the panel thought about the commodification of the poor um, and certainly the commodification of the ghetto um, in relation to kind of the Eastern St. Paul's, uh, Stokes Croft. Because I grew up in Eastern um, in the 80s and 90s when nobody wanted to live there. We had no public services. And I find it quite distasteful when I hear people talk about it being edgy, vibrant, because they weren't there in the 90s, and I feel like the communities are quite disjointed. And I just wondered if you had any views on that commodification of poverty and... Yeah. That what an excellent a, audience we have. That is, yeah. that is a difficult question. Um, I wanted to go back to the previous question about what we, what we could do about the... That's the old politician's trick. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But um, what do you ju just on this? Because I know it's not an easy answer. No. What, what's the answer to Layla's point? Which is, it sort of feels like you know, there's this Grayson Perry quote, isn't there? Artists are like the shock troops of gentrification. We march in, we're the first people to go. We like this old warehouse. We need a cheap studio. Then maybe a little cafe opens up, and people saying, "Ooh, that's kind of interesting." The area where those artists hang out, and well, you know, it's well, it, it is the case that there has been art studios in Eastern for a long time. My my right. art street. Um, and uh, it, I, I think it's symptomatic of society in the widest generality looking for alternative solutions to that of the market. You know, what you have in, in Stoke Croft and St. Paul's and Eastern is, is, are societies that are not necessarily completely driven by the pursuit of money. That's what bohemian culture is. And, and I think that's why people are attracted to, to those areas with the result that prices do go up. But I think it's symptomatic of uh, a search for alternative ways of doing things. And I think that's why everybody is in this room tonight, looking for how do we sort shit out, actually? How do we work out how to do things better? And now I'm going to come back to the other yeah. bit, which was, you know, what can we do? We've, there's a lot of legal stuff going on. Well, you know, direct action does work. Direct action does work, you know. Large swathes of London we used to be gated communities in the 1800s. And people fought to get those gates torn down. And then they were torn down. If you look at the history of Bristol, 1831 riots. They, these were about electoral reform and it moved from about 3% of the population. It led to an increase in suffrage. And that was a 300 people died in the centre of Bristol fighting for that. And that's written out of history. You know, uh, 1980, the St. Paul's riots, it changed the face of how 
Bristol reacted to, to those things. So we need to go and take back these spaces. In St. Werbergs, where I live, the billboards are routinely trashed. As soon as the billboard goes up, it's trashed. And that will mean that they will stop putting their billboards up in our community. So it works. And you can do it. And you know, we've got a 90, there's a 90 meter wall long on the M32 that we managed to blag the council into letting us paint. And since then, we've had stuff about climate change, we've had stuff about corporate advertising. You know, at one time it said, imagine a city free from corporate ad advertising. Massive, 90 meters long. You know, through doing these things, you change ideas. You change, you, you actually use the techniques that the advertisers are using to brainwash you. Um, so, you know, we want equal voice. Um, I mean, I grew up in St. Paul's and Easton, uh, as I've mentioned previously, and, you know, I seen the direct action because I, when I was a kid, I saw the direct action in, in April the 2nd, 1980, with St. Paul's riots. Uh, when I moved back to Montpellier in 2011, I saw the riots again. Maybe I should stay out of the area. <laughs> um, but to be honest with you, what I also saw was a lot of people lose out as a result of the, the riots. I saw a lot of people criminalised and the area suffered from um, having a reputation of crime and people coming into the area to um, buy drugs and that sort of thing. And actually, as much as we talk about gentrification, that sort of thing drove a lot of people out of the area. It drove a lot of my parents' generation of West Indians um, out of the area. So I'm not too sure that you know, um, that sort of direct action is the right answer. Where I see one of the problems being is that we've got quite actually substantial amount of brownfield sites um, in the inner city which have stood empty for years. Uh, we've got the old Brooks factory in St. Werber's, we've got the old chocolate factory in Greenbank, you know, we've got uh, the, uh, the derelict houses on uh, Stokes Croft. You know, these are areas where we could be developing social housing to mitigate the fact that the property prices have gone up and the young people in those areas uh, growing up now will probably never be able to afford to buy. So why are we not building social housing in those brownfield areas? You know, why are we leaving it to private developers to build expensive houses that the kids will never be able to afford? Because we don't own them. Yeah, we don't own them. But we could. No, we can't buy them without, unless somebody's prepared to sell them. The CPO powers of councils are incredibly weak, and it's a sort of fiction that we could just go out and buy land. You can only well, buy no, no, Delroy. You can only buy that land if somebody's prepared to sell it, and so we can't do that. And this is, it comes back to the thing that land ownership is absolutely critical. Yeah. Can someone answer on Amelia's question, which is she's a student, she's here, she wants, you know, she, she doesn't want to be a shock troop of gentrification. She wants to be sort of helpful. What should she be doing? So, can I just say, that question illustrates just how brilliant our students are. We have such fantastic students. They are, I've worked in quite a few universities and they are amazing. So, what a brilliant question. So, part of gentrification, look, it's 90% about land and housing. But a lot of it is that we become disconnected. And we don't meet each other and we don't know each other. And people move into neighbourhoods and move out of neighbourhoods. And people turn a lot. 
And so I think what students can do, and I totally understand the pressures that students are under, working for money, working for coursework. I think you've just had a set of deadlines that you've probably just done. Exams are coming up. I know there are pressures, and you can't always stay in the summer. You need to get internships that are not paid. Please, can you pay them? Um, and just keep going. I know the pressures, but if there is time to volunteer, to get to know people in communities, to go and work with special needs kids, to go up to Patchway to the Older Person Centre, you will enrich your own degrees and you will enrich the city. And I know that lots of people do this already, but the more that students can do that, the better the, the city will be and the better the university will be. Just to say on that, students... Students are not the enemy. The unbridled growth of the university is the enemy in this. And we've got a university uh, which is chasing money and expanding. It's buying up land. It's trying to increase its size dramatically. That has terrible effects on the city. The university will tell us how much is invested because they're here. And that's true, and that's great, and there's lots of fantastic things about the university. But it has to stop growing, because the city can't grow to match it. And the university can end up strangling the city. And it also, in a sense, for Chris, I feel like Chris's position is almost like the Ballad of Reading Jail. Answering the other question is that each man kills the thing he loves. And that's what's happening with the artist community, because what they've done is they have brought up the standard of an area, they've then increased the values there, and then they've brought in the gentrification. So the very thing that they do, the very way that they act, it's not, it's not what they're trying to do, but the effect of it is that the thing that they love, they end up killing. We, um, we'll, we'll take one reason to be cheerful from each of you, whether that is a... We're gonna a, end on an upbeat yeah, note here, yeah. guys. An idea Pre of, how to, uh, of how to fix things or something that's already happening. Can't end on the balling of no, ballad no. of Reading Jail, no. I don't think. <laughs> Delroy. Let's close tax loopholes for the rich and use some of that money uh, to benefit the uh, rest of us. I guess my reason to be cheerful is that we seem to be moving into a period where we are genuinely questioning the way we think about things. There is a growing, genuine philosophical debate about where we should be going. And after 40 years of really a closing down of thinking with the neoliberal agenda, I think we have a possibility to actually change the way we do things. Antonia? I'm going to slip in two, if I may. Yeah. The first one is... Um, Paul's critiques about the university I take on board, along with many of my fellow academics, we've all been on strike. We've been bringing Park Street to the And we are very, very cheerful. We balloted today to come off strike for the time being, but it is absolutely for the time being. And property is very much implicated in all of this because how you value a pension fund depends on your assets and your liabilities. And the more you borrow, the, the worse the pensions. So reason to be cheerful, number one, is yes, the lecturers are striking back and we are going to make a change and there is a different mood music and we are getting somewhere. It's not perfect, but we are, we are, on, the, we are on the march. Okay. So that's reason to be cheerful number one. Reason to be cheerful number two is I am slightly obsessed with bus prices. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you go to the Bristol of, uh, Festival Ideas, fantastic, Andrew, fantastic work down there, but there was a child who stood up and said, look, I live in Hartcliffe, I can't afford to come to the city centre because we don't have a car and the buses are too expensive. 
I worked with a few people, amazing Room 13 down at Hareclive Primary. We've got a nice project funded by the university, funded by the Brigstone Institute called Buses for Justice. And we're doing an arts pro project with the kids to make a film and also a manifesto to say we should have cheap or free bus fares for kids at Bristol. Like you get in London, up to 12 in Bristol. And then your replacement says it's national policy. So reason to be cheerful number two, buses. <laughs> and Paul? For me, what I would say is, I know as a council, in terms of, in terms of housing and, and this issue around gentrification, we can't do everything that we want to do. But just because you can't do everything is not an excuse not to do anything. And we are doing absolutely everything we can do. We are pulling every lever we possibly can to make a difference. And the projection for the number of affordable homes that will be built in 2020, actually 2019-20, is 1,087. The number built four years ago was 120. I feel really cheerful about that. Huge, huge thanks to four, I thought, absolutely brilliant guests. Paul, Antonia, Chris and Delroy. Big hand for them, please. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And here now to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Please welcome to the stage the brilliant Gavin Osborne. Gavin, we were just talking during the interval. Um, you've done loads of the stuff with Robin Ince and Brian Cox, so you're kind of slumming, with, slumming it with us tonight. Yeah, no, well, that was... Robin does these gigs um, with Brian Cox, and I was lucky enough years ago to be part of the, the Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People thing, which was a sort of rationalist uh, uh, gig set up by the New Humanist Association. Um, and largely me and a bunch of other musicians and, uh, and comics sort of tagged on because we got to meet famous people like Brian Cox Where does that and just take? gaze lovingly into his eyes. Uh, <laughs> they are beautiful eyes. Oh, my sweet Lord. They are beautiful <laughs> eyes. Where, where, I don't understand a thing that he's talking about, but my where, God. Where did pretty. that happen? But that was at the Bloomsbury Theatre, and then it sort of got bigger at and At Christmas time. At Christmas time, and it, and it started because of... Uh, it was a reaction to, I think, one of the guys from the Christian voice, and they were protesting about the, the, the bus sign that said, um, there is probably no God, so we may as well enjoy ourselves or something. And so um, then a little small gig grew into a bigger gig, and people like Ben Goldacre were there and Richard Dawkins. And I was always called on to come and sing a stupid song to sort of like a palate cleanser between the clever guys. <laughs> well... That hopefully is a familiar situation for you. Very you much so, yeah. Those skills this evening. Uh, before we get you to sing a song, um, we sh should hear some of your ideas, uh, which yeah, could be I, potential reasons to be cheerful. I think there should be a curfew for people over 40. 
Because <laughs> I, I have a self-imposed one. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm over 40. I just turned 40 last year. And, and I, I did a gig recently in Bath at The Nest, which is where all the students go. And I was asked to do it for, for it was an amnesty gig. And, um, and I was comfortably, like by about 20 years, the oldest person in the room. And I just, I just think I had no right to be there. <laughs> Nobody wanted me there. I shouldn't have been. There should have been like an air raid siren going off that just went, go home. You are not welcome now. And also, it should, it should automatically shut off our mobile communications. Because, like, for example, <laughs> Donald Trump tweets at about 4 a.m. and suddenly the world wakes up and everything. You know, if, if there was a curfew worldwide for people over 40, maybe like 1 a.m., problem solved. Do you remember being young and being, being in clubs or places and seeing older guys in there and thinking, what are they up to? Why are they in here? There's All the time. There's something quite sinister about people our age. And there's something the, big in those Yeah, and those guys, those guys were always, and it is largely men, isn't it? And they, we were always, they were always standing at the bar looking creepy. Yes. And, and when you stand at the bar and realise you're the guy looking creepy, yeah, yeah. it's time to go home. Yeah. You know. I'm not, I'm not sure how to enforce it. I think the problem with it is, you know, the air raid siren might be a bit much. <laughs> but there's... <laughs> sort of arresting over 40s who are maybe if your phone's just automatically shut off that we check our phones so much then the sheer frustration of that would be like oh fuck this I'm going home what time is the curfew established at? I would say I mean what do you guys think I, I think one is probably fine for 40 That's, I mean, one is pretty oh, late to be too, honest too, too late. Almost, almost too late but then midnight is almost too early I mean, one is not going to give me any trouble I mean honestly you can impose that curfew and it'll be fine <laughs> okay uh, ten? yeah no, ten, nine or ten I think <laughs> absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your next idea? Okay, my next idea. I was, ch- I was chatting to someone recently about the good things that have happened recently with regards to policies, and someone said, oh, what about the 5P plastic bags? That's good. That seems to have made a big difference. And then someone came into the conversation and said, oh, yeah, but the trouble is those canvas bags are even worse in some ways. Is because, that true? Yeah, because of the... Is that, has anyone else heard the same thing? <laughs> it, it takes so much water to grow the cotton... That it's worse for the environment. Uh, is that true? Apparently so, yeah. So I was there going, well, then what's the answer here? And my answer is no bags at all. <laughs> Every person in Britain is given a shopping trolley, <laughs> but, a, but like a foldable one that they can slide into their cars, or if they don't live in, if they live in the city and don't have a car, that they can just sort of slide like they or to fold away like you would with a. You know, your ironing board, let's say, but you would fold it away and then you would walk it out when you're going to, you know, just to get a few apples or if you thought, oh, I might get a bag of potatoes today, take your folding trolley. And what happens if you sort of... You get one. The problem is yeah. you get one. And then what happens? You've you got to look after it. You've got to look after it, mate. I'm not sure about the practicalities of the trolley thing, honestly. People said that about the practicalities of kids and they still had them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, people have often made that comparison between shopping trolleys and kids, <laughs> Uh, also, and this is a side note, it is frustrating when your kid gets too big to put them in the bit with the legs at the front, isn't yeah. it? And they stop you from letting your kids hang on the front and push them down the aisle. Health and safety. That's frowned upon. <laughs> you people. <laughs> you people. Okay. So, I, I'm, I'm into it. I would like well, to I'm, I'm feel enlightened about the bags for life. Right, yeah. And, and have you got a better idea than Gavin? No, I don't. No, no, I yeah. don't, basically. All right, I'm into it. I yeah. like the idea okay. of not carrying things as well, just yeah. pushing them along. Uh, Gavin, what else do you have? All right, I've got, I've got one more. Okay. I don't know if this happens so much in Bristol. I probably should have asked, asked Paul. But the, um, I think it's called defensive architecture with the spikes 
for homeless spikes and everything. Um, and they're everywhere. And they even put the little, the little bars now on benches to stop people, homeless people sleeping properly. Yeah, and it's, they're, they're all over the place. They did, I, saw, I saw them under the Westway years ago, and then they're outside um, bigger shops that don't, don't want homeless sleeping there. So they make, they make sort of spikes everywhere to make people like pigeons. And it's sickening, and it needs to stop. And so my... Totally right. So my policy for that is... There was like last year in Manchester, there was a woman who who was so offended and so angry about this that she took all of the cushions from her house and, and covered these, these spikes, these, sort of these, these concrete spikes and covered them. And people then brought sandwiches and it became this incredible sense of you know, community and saying, no, these people are people too and that we're all just you know, a few steps away from being there ourselves. And then I found something in Vancouver. What they've done is, this is basically my policy. I've stolen it. There's a bench that by day says, this is a bench. And then by night, you can fold it over like an airplane tray table, and it says, this is a bedroom. Really? It, and it doesn't, and it's, and it's sort of, it's, obviously, it's not solving the, the homeless problem, but it is at least acknowledging that these people are human beings. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's good. That defensive architecture's got to go. It's got to go. And I, but I think if it's going to go, then it needs to be replaced with something. So, you know, like I say, comfort Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we like that. I'm horrified. I'm horrified. I didn't, did you not know about it? I didn't not know about really, it. No, 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 I didn't either. Horrible. Yeah. Good. Um, not good that there's defensive <laughs> architecture. That's bad. I think good we're all going to get rid of it. Is there anybody pro defensive architecture? No, 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 in the no, room? no. Let's not ask. No. We don't, we don't want we don't to know. Want those. I, don't, no. I don't think those are the people we've attracted. I agree. Tonight. I don't think they are. Yeah. No. Um, Gav, you're going to give us a song. Yes. Now, um, do, do I need to uh, help move this microphone oh, up yeah. and get you plugged in and so on. Uh, while we do that, do you, want, do you want to tell us about it? And yeah, also, will. this will involve uh, a, a contribution from Ed, so you need to there, run through that with him. Mr. Ed Miliband. <laughs> the right honourable. What a strange day. I feel, <laughs> I feel slightly nervous about this, but carry no, it's on. It's fine. Um, so, I don't know if this applies to many of you. It certainly doesn't apply to most of you, I don't think, judging by the questions. But... Um, I, I'm one of these people who, a bit like at the Robin Inns gigs, I felt like very much like a dunce in the corner, learning stuff from all the clever people. And um, quite often these days now, with Facebook and what have you, I just read the top line of most articles and assume a sense of knowledge that I simply do not have. Um, so I've written this song, which is a, a, largely a sort of a rallying cry to myself, which is a sentence I should have used and said more often when talking to people cleverer than me, which is, I don't know enough about that. Um, and that's what the song's called. So, Ed, your job during um, what will palpably become the choruses, you just have to ask the questions. Okay. Well, I'm at a dinner party tucking into the wine Stuck in a conversation about Israel and Palestine I remember something Tony Benn said that should fit in fine If there's a God, he's not an estate agent I'll pretend that's one of mine but after that big impression, I'm now way out of my depth And there's no going back for chit-chat I haven't got the guts to say Don't know enough about that Go on, Ed, what's the first question? Should there be new privacy legislation on social media? Don't know enough Don't know enough about that Is fourth-wave feminism being hijacked by the rise of virtue signalling? Don't know enough Don't know enough about that is Deck finally ready to spread his wings and go solo? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? But I don't know enough. Don't know enough about that. 
Well, there's an online petition about boycotting Nestle. I know that it's bad, but I don't know in what way. Is it something about baby formula past its sell-by date? Or is it forcing kids to drink breast milk for minimum wage? I've absolutely no idea. Anyway, I'll add my name to thousands, though I don't know the facts. And I'll sit down with my cuppa and eat my Kit Kat. I just wish I could say, don't know enough about that. Should there be a make-your-own-sandwich option in the supermarket? Don't know enough. Don't know enough about that. Is it okay not to introduce your friend to David Attenborough? No, absolutely not, mate. That's a disgrace. Next one. Tomato ketchup, fridge or cupboard? Well, now I want to stop and ask the audience this. Tomato ketchup, fridge or cupboard? You're dead right. It's the fridge. Once opened, anyway, for Christ's sake. I'm not an animal. Does a Linus Morissette's Jaggy's Little Pill album get enough credit? No, absolutely not. It's a masterpiece. But I know when I watch TV news on the Syrian crisis, I can't finish the report without crying my eyes out. But before my tears are dry, I'm back and checking my status, scrolling through photos of friends on their exotic vacations. And after five minutes, I'm laughing at a video of a cat falling off a piano. Then I'm with my wife shopping for tools to build a shed She needs drill bits and a hacksaw and wood chip for the bed And the man in the shop just ignores her And then instead directs all advice to me But I've no clue what he said It's something about leaving the base some room to breathe And not along as my wife rolls her eyes and turns to leave I just wish I could say I should speak to her, mate, honestly That is so sexist in this day and age But I don't know enough about that Is Jeff a borderline millennial? <laughs> no I don't know enough about that. Can the House of Representatives block the Senate? I don't know what either of those things are, really, if I'm honest. Is The Phantom Menace a misunderstood masterpiece? No, it's a stain on the otherwise impeccable legacy of George Lucas, you bloody idiot. Because I know a lot about all the things that I like. Every lyric of Bob Dylan, well, till he crashed his motorbike, and I could probably write a thesis about every episode of Friday Night Lights. Always know my downstage left from my stage right. But now they're talking foreign spending and the Human Rights Act, and I'll listen, but I'm missing that piano falling cat. I just wish I could say, don't know enough about that. I don't know enough about that. No, I don't know enough about that. Thank you very much. That was so good. Thank you, Gavin Osborne. And, uh, and, and that's us done. I know. I, I sort of feel it's gone a bit quick. It has gone quick, but thank you so much for coming. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> no problem at all. I mean, I missed my train, but you know, at least I got here in the end. So we should thank our guests. We should. Paul, and we had Antonia, and we had Delroy. And we, and we had we Chris. Had Chris. And thank you to Gavin Osborne, who's just wonderful. Thank you so much to you for coming. I think this has been my favourite one of these yet. Give yourself a big round of applause, audience. You have been the best audience. Even though the crepe stall... And can, look, OK, next time we come back to Bristol, I want that crepe stall back, please. Yeah. Paul? Direct action. Honestly, I mean, we should have a council-run crepe stall. <laughs> Paul, you can sort of, you know, spend a bit of time there. I know you've got other things to do. Uh, but, I mean, you know, it's been perfect, apart yeah. from the crepes. The so, lack of crepes. That's right. So he's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.